But speaking of, of battlefields, I have always been fascinated with military history, even as a little kid. And I know a lot of little boys love playing army men and love thinking about it. I had G.I. Joes growing up and for birthdays and Christmases, I would always ask for G.I. Joes. And I remember even as a kid drawing ships and, and drawing jets that I wanted to send into G.I. Joe because I thought that was going to be so cool that they were going to get my ideas and implement these things. And I have a very, cl- very clear memory of one jet that I drew. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, that was terrible. <laughs> they would have never, ever, ever, they probably made them smile and but they would have never implemented it. It was, a, it was a child's thing, and I had wings that aerodynamically wouldn't have worked ever. Um, but I loved, I loved playing with military. My, my boys, they love playing with army men. But I think as I got older, I got more interested in the strategy and the theory behind military warfare. And as I got into high school, the Civil War and the Revolutionary War and Vietnam and World War I and World War II... I love just thinking about what that meant and the sacrifice that many gave to secure not only our nation, but just battles between other countries and how the world has has formed and shaped. And during the time that scripture was written, the Roman, the Roman Empire was the greatest empire that had ever lived up until that time. The Caesars had waged war across lands and, and taken them over. And the Roman military industrial complex was significant. It was huge. And their fighting prowess was significant and couldn't be conquered. And it drove fear across the lands. And they would move from one country to the next country to the next landmass and conquer. One of the movies that I really have enjoyed in that time period is a movie called Gladiator. And if you haven't seen this movie, it's about a Roman general who serves the Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, who was a real Caesar. And he had a son who, in the movie, is just a mess. And so he turns to his general, and as he's dying, getting ready to die, he tells him that he wants him to take over until he passes on the power to the Senate back to the people. Well, his son comes in, and he tells them this news. And his son is so distraught and so angry that he actually chokes out his father. And then he takes over. Well, then Maximus, this general, realizing that this son who wasn't supposed to take over is now going to take out all of his enemies, he goes and he moves on to try to get out of the way or try to get to his army and fight back with the Roman Praetorian stops him and tries to kill him. And because he's so versed in battle, he, he defends himself. And then he knows that they're going to go after his wife and his son. So he being from Spain tries to ride back, but he's wounded. And by the time he gets there, they've already killed his wife and his son and he gets sold into slavery and he becomes a gladiator. And I won't tell you the rest of the movie, but there is one scene where he goes back to Rome and he's with his fellow gladiators and using his strategy that he learned as a Roman soldier, he tells them to get together and stay together. If we stay together, that's the only chance we have. And he yells it out, stay together and you'll live. And he has them put together a formation against these chariots that have knives and blades on their wheels. And they managed to take out these chariots, and it's pretty amazing. And it's a battle that they should not have won, but because they stuck together, they survived. Well, the formation, as I've watched it, is a real formation. It was called the testudo, which is Latin for tortoise. And what it was, was Roman phalanx, a legion that would come together and they would stand shoulder to shoulder and the front row would put their shields up. And then they would gather in the center, livestock, soldiers, anyone who needed to be protected. And then the next set of soldiers would put their shields above and so on and so forth. And you would have shields on the side, shields behind, shields above. 
It resembled a tortoise shell, somewhat impenetrable. Cassius Dio, who was a Roman historian, writes this about the Testudo describing the campaign of Mark Antony in 36 BC, so contemporary to Scripture. He says, this, this Testudo and the way in which it is formed are as follows. The baggage animals, the light-armed troops, and the cavalry are placed in the center of the army. The heavy-armed troops who use the oblong, curved, cylindrical shields are drawn up around the outside, making a rectangular figure. And facing outward and holding their arms at the ready, they enclose the rest. The others who have flat shields form a compact body in the center and raise their shields over the heads of all the others so that nothing but shields can be seen in every part of the phalanx. Alike and all the men by the density of the formation are under shelter from missiles. Indeed, it is so marvelously strong that men can walk upon it. And whenever they come to a narrow ravine, even horses and vehicles can be driven over it. The strength of this formation was in the unity of the soldiers who were standing shoulder to shoulder, holding their shields together. And they were all headed in the same direction with one goal. This testudo was often used to come up against a fortress. And they would move and they would move, and then they would shoot arrows out of it up the wall. And the arrows that were being shot down at them or at them would bounce right off. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us, and this has been my prayer from the minute that our pastor, Will, had said that he was moving on, that the Lord was moving him to Florida and that the Lord had given them that new vision for their new ministry. My prayer is that we would be a church unified under the banner of Jesus Christ. And in the same way that our strength against Satan and against all his arrows would bounce off of us because the unity that we have in Christ. This was Paul's prayer for the Philippians. If you would turn there with me. To Philippians chapter 2, and actually chapter 1, I'm going to start in the previous chapter and read through, but our text will be this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a background to the book of Philippians. From the very outset of this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, Paul's maintained a focus on the church as a whole. And his attempt is to promote unity. That's what the purpose of this letter to the Philippians is. He says, to all the saints in Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. He regards them all as saints, as believers. Though certain ones in the church have caused division within the church. And we see that in Philippians 4, 2 through 3. Paul's focus on all of the church carries on throughout the entire letter. Paul advocates for humility and for unity through his own example. In the introduction, when he includes both himself and Timothy together under the title, Servants of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul could have referred to himself as an apostle and Timothy as a, ser as a servant. And that was his custom when he wrote letters, Paul the Apostle. But it's interesting that at the beginning of this letter, he refers to himself and to Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. He realizes that first and foremost, that he is a servant of the Lord, just like every other Christian. It's only after addressing the Philippians as a unified church and praying for them to this end and giving his own life as a model that Paul turns to chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, to urge them to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. They're to stand firm by contending for the faith and not being fearful of those who persecute them. The emphasis in 1, 27 through 30 is on unity in the face of pressure from without. And then we move into chapter 2, 
And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul continues to urge the church to maintain unity. But now in the face of problems from within, thus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, insofar as it focuses once again on the theme of unity, it is a further development of the command from 127 to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's of little value to be unified against opposition from outside if we then fail to be unified on the inside. So let's read Philippians chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 27. And it says this, Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Chapter 2. And this is our passage for this morning. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, may you bless the reading of your word, but also this time of preaching and hearing. Father, your word is truth. May your word by your spirit penetrate our hearts that we would live this out to its fullest extent, Father, We'll never be able to do it perfectly, but you call us to do it ever more increasingly. Father, as you sanctify us through your word, may we recognize areas that we have failed in. As the Puritan prayed this morning with us in our hearts, that we would walk in humiliation and humility, Father, that we would recognize areas where we have failed, where we have wronged, where we have done our duties in a manner that is born out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, and that we would repent of those ways and offer up our service to others and to you, Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ for your glory and honor, but also for our good. Father, in this time as I preach, I pray that you would help us to remember those things that are true. And if I say anything false or that is untrue, that our minds would have that stricken. Protect your word, protect your righteousness, protect sound doctrine. In this church, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at our text this morning... I want to go back to verse 27 and just briefly be reminded that Paul's prayer for them to walk worthy, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And that is to stand firm in one spirit, to stand in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. As we look at our passage this morning, Paul says, if then. That's very similar to saying, therefore. Therefore, everything that's happened in the past, and specifically 27 through 30, that we're to stand firm, that we're to stand together, stand unified. As that Roman tortoise 
formation to stand together, shields together, shoulder to shoulder, moving towards one goal, one purpose. Paul says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete. How do we do that? By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or deceit or conceit, but in humility, considering others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. It's interesting. Paul sets this up. There's a lot of if statements at the beginning, then the command, and then he tells us how to do it. If, make my joy complete by doing these things. And then the application comes. So he says, if then, so therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation or comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of spirit, if there's any affection or mercy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, by having the same love, by being united in spirit, by being intent on one purpose, by doing nothing out of selfish ambition, by in humility regarding one another, by humility regarding one another as more important than yourselves, by each person being concerned not only about their own interests, but also by being concerned about the interests of others, by adopting the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Do you see that? It's the if statements. If these things are true, make Paul's joy complete by doing these things. There's that command right in the middle. It's a lever. If these things are true, Paul's joy will be complete by doing these things. So he starts off. He's calling us through the Philippian church, to be unified, verses 1 through 2. So let's look at these if statements. The grounds of Paul's appeal to unity. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Is Paul asking the question, is there encouragement in Christ? Is that the question? Do we, is, it, is he wondering if there's encouragement in Christ? No, this is a rhetorical question. What he's really saying is, hey, if there is, and there is, then it should motivate us towards something. He says, there's encouragement in Christ. This word, encouragement in Christ, it's a very similar word to the word that's used for the Holy Spirit, paraclesis. He's the paraclete, our helper, our encourager. Christ is our comforter and our helper. Very similar to what the Holy Spirit is called, our helper and our encourager. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort provided by love, this is an endurance. Paul is saying, endure through the love of God the Father. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says this, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has given us love through the Holy Spirit. It's been poured out on us, in our hearts, through the Holy Spirit. So we have the encouragement of Christ. We have the love of the Father. And then third, Paul says, if we have fellowship in the Spirit. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean fellowship in our spirits, but what it's talking about is fellowship in the Holy Spirit. This idea of fellowship has to do with participation with or communion with the Holy Spirit enjoyed by each and every believer. The Holy Spirit is the one who will give the Philippian believers strength, as Paul mentions in chapter 4, verse 13 of this letter, to love each other, to have courage to seek the interests of others, 
and generally to do the will of God. In other contexts, Paul refers to the Spirit as the one who lives in Christians, sanctifying them. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, he mentions that. In 3.16, Galatians 5.16, Ephesians 5.18. And the Spirit is making Christ known to the believer, Romans 8.16. And through believers, 2 Corinthians 3.3. So thus the Philippian believers could count on encouragement from Christ. Comfort from the love of God and communion with the Holy Spirit to enable them to live in unity with one another. It's interesting that he uses a Trinitarian encouragement, a Trinitarian motivation. You have the encouragement of Jesus Christ, you have the love of God the Father, and you have fellowship with the Spirit. I can't think of anything else in the world that is more unified than the Trinity. The Trinity is the, the epitome of unifi unification. Nothing is more unified than the Godhead. And Paul appeals to God, who he is in his nature, to encourage us as our motivation and lastly, he gives a fourth one, affection or mercy. Paul moves from our relationship in the vertical sense, our relationship to the Lord, to the horizontal sense, affection or mercy. Paul seems to move in this way because these terms aren't necessarily in reference to God, but reference to things taking place at the church at Philippi. And then also between the Philippians and Paul. Paul is saying that as a result of the enjoying the encouragement in Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit, they need to have compassion and mercy toward one another and also towards him. He's in prison. Since the, since the Philippians have experienced all these things, he urges them to make his joy complete by being of the same mind. Whatever the issues have been in the past, and there have been issues, and we'll go over those very briefly, there needs to be reconciliation and restoration. Let's move to verse 2. Make my joy complete. It's the command towards unity. Paul's joy is bound up here. He says, make my joy complete. Well, does Paul just want us to please him? That's kind of weird. Why would, why would Paul say, make, why wouldn't he say, make God's joy complete by being unified? Why does he say, make my joy complete? So is this Paul's joy or is this God's joy? Yes. Yes, it is. That's the interesting thing. Paul was so enamored with the glory of God that Paul's joy was bound up in God's joy. Paul sees the Philippians as his spiritual children. Parents, don't you just hate to see your children fighting? Whether they're young, like my children, or they're old, older. When I see my boys fighting or Bryn and Jude fighting, rarely do Thad and Bryn ever fight. But my children fright and I, ah, oh, it bothers me so much. I don't want to see my children fight, let alone long-standing fights, long-standing issues. Parents hate to see their children in conflict. And Paul hates to see the Philippians having this conflict within the church. He wants to see unity, which honors the Lord. So Paul says, if you are unified, you will complete my joy. But not only that, because Paul's joy is bound up in the joy of the Lord, it's ultimately God's joy. Paul wasn't primarily concerned with his own joy. 
He was more concerned with what would bring joy and glory to the Father. His command is to make his joy complete because ultimately he knows that's what God, what brings God the most joy is a unified body of believers living together in love and in service. It's rooted in seeing God be glorified and bringing him joy. But it's our joy too, or at least it should be. In a similar manner, our joy, like Paul's, is and ought to be rooted in what pleases the Lord. Only when we're pursuing the will of God and the glory of God can we experience true and lasting joy. However, we often believe that our joy will will come from pursuing what we want. How often have you gone, man, you know what? I just want to do this thing. And these people, these children of mine, my wife, the people in our church, they're keeping me from doing what I really want to do. And until I am able to do that or get that thing, I'm not going to be joyful. I have a way of making other people miserable around me when I don't get what I want. I'm very good at emotional manipulation. I know I've got, I've got my ax down. I've got the silent treatment. I've got the side eye. I've got sometimes, I mean, if it gets really bad, the upset crying. I've got the withholding affection. I've got the undermining you. I've got all these down. I am the chief of selfish people. I'm pretty selfish. You don't always get to see it because you're not in my mind, but man, I am wrestling a lot with selfishness. And if you're honest in your own mind, I don't want to see hands. You think you might be that way too? You think you might have learned ways to get what you want, when you want it, how you want it, when you want it? But then, when you do get it, it's gone. There's no real joy bound up in getting what we want when it's not aligned with the will of God. There's no real joy. It's vapid. A brief momentary moment, you may get it. But then it's gone. It's fleeting. Because it's not bound up in what God calls us to. See, our joy should be rooted in what God loves. It should be rooted in what God wants. There's a vivid truth that we need to reconcile in our hearts, brothers and sisters, that nothing apart from God and his will can bring us joy and peace. You can test the waters if you want. You can try it out and keep pursuing what you want at the cost of others. But you will always come up empty in the end. So Paul is commanding the Philippians and through them, us, to make his joy complete In doing so, we make God's joy complete and we also find our own joy. Paul commands them to make his joy complete, make God's joy complete. We will see our own joy if we do the following things. We've got our motivation. We have God. We have Jesus as our encourager. We've got the love of the Father in us. We've got the Holy Spirit walking in fellowship with him. We can do it. We can make Paul's joy complete. The Philippians can do it. We can honor the Lord. So how do we do it? What does that look like? 
Well, here's the nature of, command, of the command. How do we make jo- Paul's joy complete? How do the Philippians make Paul's joy complete? Well, he says this, by thinking the same way or being like-minded. By having the same love, by being united in spirit, by being intent on one purpose, that's how we do it in verse 2. Let's go through each one of these. By thinking the same way or being like-minded. Brothers and sisters, does this mean we have to have the same opinion on everything? I like blue carpet. Thus, you all should like blue carpet. I like warm lights. And if you like bright lights, get out. We don't all have to have the same opinion. That's not what it's saying. That would actually be weird and unhealthy. That's a cult. That's Jim Jones. You toe the line or you're going to drink the Kool-Aid. That's not what Paul is saying. How do I know? Because 1 Corinthians 12, Paul actually urges unity and diversity and diversity in unity. In Romans 12, 16, that same expression that Paul uses, and it's used 12 times, excuse me, four times by Paul throughout his letters. In Romans 12, 16, it's living in harmony. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. That's what he says. It's interesting that he connects living in unity and not being proud. We'll come back to that a little bit in a little bit. And then in Romans 15, 5, carries the idea of unity in the midst of strained relationships. Similar to 2 Corinthians 13, 11. This expression of having the same mind is focused on an attitude and not necessarily critical thinking. The call is to strive for peaceful, harmonious attitudes towards one another to the glory of God. So Paul's not saying the Philippians have to have the same thinking on everything, the same opinion, love the same style of curtains. But what he is saying is that you need to be harmonious in your thinking, moving together, loving each other. We'll talk about deferring to one another. Then he moves on by having the same love. So we have thinking the same way and then having the same love. This is the same love for God through Christ. The same love for God, the love for his church, both local and universal, and the same love for the gospel. Philippians 4, 8 says this, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Love these things. If you want to know what it means to have the same love, it's to love God. And in loving God, loving these things, what's honorable, what's true, what's just, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable, what's morally excellent, what's praiseworthy, dwell on those things. Love these things. That's what it means to have the same love, the same love for our Lord Jesus Christ, to love each other and to display these things, to love the world that's dying and doesn't know any of these things, doesn't know anything about them. Being of the same mind, having the same love. And third, he says, by being united in spirit, or having one spirit. Again, this is being united in the Holy Spirit and the things of the Spirit. Paul tells us to think on these things, the list that I just gave you. 
But he also talks, tells us in Galatians 5 to walk in the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to abhor the works of the flesh. What are the works of the flesh? Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy. Those are the ones that I pulled out. It's not the exhaustive list there. But those are things that when you look at them, those are characteristics of fighting and disunity. It's called the works of the flesh. And then Paul says to put on the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the very opposite of that other list, the works of the flesh. You think there's kindness, gentleness, joy, love, in outbursts of anger, in dissensions, in jealousy, in hatred? No, they're diametrically opposed to each other. Paul says, be united in the Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, these things should be, not be known of you. Jealousy, envy, strife, hatred, dissensions, factions, envy. But you should be walking, abiding in the Spirit, pursuing the fruit of the Spirit, putting off those old dead things, the works of the flesh, and putting on the fruit of the Spirit. This is our purpose. This is the one purpose that Paul and God ultimately intends for us. And then verse three. It's the application. How do we do these things? How do we be unified? How do we have one mind and one spirit? How do we have one love? We, we, we know we can do these things because we have Christ, our encourager, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit. He's told us what we need to do is have one mind, walking in one Spirit, having the same love. So what gets in the way of us doing that? Brothers and sisters, what gets in the way of us living this way? And this is, just isn't in our church. I don't want us to feel like this is just about Applegate. Because Applegate Community Church is made up of individuals. And those individuals have families. And those families are made up of marriages and children. And those families come to Applegate. And we make up our local church and this is one church of many local churches in the universal church. You know, as, as Mark read that letter this morning, it was encouraging, but it was also sad to hear that that family was hurt by a church split. How does that happen? Paul is addressing how it happens. What gets in the way of us being unified, one mind, one spirit, one love, one goal. Well, let's look at verse three. Verse three says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The idea is to treat others more important than yourself. He says, Nothing is more opposite to unity and being one in spirit and purpose than selfishness in seeking one's own interest. Paul says in light of the encouragement in Christ, the love from God and the fellowship with the spirit, that there must be no selfish ambition amongst the Philippians. Such an attitude is totally inconsistent with God, with 
inconsistent with Christ, who did not consider himself, consider equality with God something to be held onto, to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the nature of a servant. God loves us. So he requires that we lay down our selfish goals. It's that desire that I want what I want when I want it. And I'm going to knock over anybody who gets in my way. Throughout scripture, the term selfishness or selfish ambition, it means an ugly attitude and corresponding actions. And this ugly attitude and corresponding ugly actions, it leaves a wake of hurt and brokenness behind it. Broken churches, as we read about this morning. Broken marriages, broken children, broken businesses, broken world. It's that selfish desire to do what pleases me. And that's what the world is telling us now. Do whatever makes you feel good. If your heart is telling you, follow your heart. Brothers and sisters, I already told you this morning that I'm seriously selfish. And if I were to follow my own heart and pursue those things, I would trample over my wife and my children. And you and anybody else I come into contact with. Following your heart creates mass murderers. Serial killers, rapists, thieves. But it also creates the husband who won't listen to his wife and steamrolls her. It creates children who are disobedient to their parents. It creates parents who abuse their children and exasperate them. It creates pastors who abuse their congregation and see this pulpit as their divine right, their throne, looking out over their people, their kingdom. Selfish ambition, it's ugly, and it creates ugly actions. Paul says, do nothing Nothing out of selfish ambition. It's that desire that I want to promote me and my agenda and my goals. And if you're in my way, I will run over you. Or I will make you feel terrible. I'm running this way and you better run with me. That's not unity, brothers and sisters. That's selfish ambition. That's desiring what I want. In 2 Corinthians 12, 20, the term means that Paul uses that, that selfish ambition. Paul lists, Paul lists sins that were present in the Corinthian church. Let's see, epitome of selfishness. This list includes quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. In the book of James, James connects the term with bitter envy. In chapter 3, verse 14, he calls on his readers to admit and repent from such attitudes. He goes on to say in verse 16 of chapter 3 that when such attitudes are present, there is disorder and every kind of wickedness. In fact, he regards such wisdom as earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. James 3.15. See, brothers and sisters, sometimes we couch our envy, our strife, our jealousy in, in wisdom. Sometimes we even find Bible verses that will fit the narrative, and we take them out of context, and we manipulate them, and we go, see? But it's really born out of our own agenda and our own selfish ambition and our own desires and our own goals. Paul says that's, that's earthly, that's ugly. That's not from heaven. In fact, it's of the devil. 
Earlier in this book, Paul writes to the Philippians in verse 17. He describes the motivation of those who preach Christ from selfish ambition. That's interesting. It also carries the idea of factions that were starting to take place in the Philippian church. It's connected to this idea of false motives. But yeah, weren't they preaching the gospel? And Paul says, yeah, at least Christ is being preached, but that doesn't mean that their motivations are right and they don't have selfish ambition. See, Paul was an apostle and he had power and esteem. People knew his name. And there were some in the church who wanted that. They wanted his position and they wanted to be esteemed like the apostle. They wanted to be known as an apostle. So you have these people rising up and preaching Christ while he's in prison, thinking it would press against him and hurt his ministry. Paul doesn't want Philippian believers to seek their own interests and pursue selfish, me-centered agendas. It's individualistic. And that type of thinking would destroy the church back then and it will destroy the church now. But in this section, selfish ambition is also coupled with the idea of vanity. Both of those are strongly prohibited. And the believers at Philippi are to do nothing out of selfish ambition and vanity. See, sometimes we can even preach the gospel. We can learn theology. We can teach theology. We can talk theology. And it's born out of desire for us to be seen as this theologian, as this teacher, as having this great expanse of knowledge. And theology is prized in our circle. Knowledge is prized in our circle, but that's why scripture says knowledge puffs up. Because if you're not learning or teaching or talking theology to encourage, to edify, to admonish, but to be known as a teacher, to be known as a spiritual person, to be known as someone who knows God's word deeply, that's what you want to be known as? It's selfish ambition. Paul says in the next section, but the opposite of that is be concerned about the interests of others in humility. Humility wasn't, it wasn't a valued characteristic in Rome in this time. Not at all. In fact, it was looked down on. The word humility rarely shows up in Roman literature That was contemporary to scripture, to the New Testament. Almost never shows up. And when it does, the connotation is like weakness or servility. It's like you're a lowly servant and not spoken of in a good way. Not, oh, that person's such a servant. It's like, oh, that person's just a servant. Oh, man, that person is so weak. How could they let themselves do that? How could they let people just walk all over them? How can they not stand up and demand what they want? That's how the Romans saw it. But in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, humility is a commodity. Last week, Dan discussed how pride manifested itself in James 1, being slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. We're to put off pride and arrogance and we're to put on humility. We're to take off selfish ambition on our own goals and clothe ourselves in humble submission. Paul says to consider others. This is the idea of serving others, preferring others. There's no I in prefer like there's no I in team. You're to prefer others. In this sense, it's the idea, like I said, of submitting ourselves. Ephesians 5, 17 and 21 says, don't, so don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Jumping down to verse 21, submitting to one another in fear of Christ. Don't be a fool, submit to one another. How do we submit? Well, there's lots of ways in our life we can submit In 5, 22 through 31, husbands and wives. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We like to quote the first part as men. Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, guess what? Paul says, husbands, love your wife so much that you would do anything that you would die for her. There's service and submission. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents for this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Children, submit to your parents. Slaves, you can make that more modern today. Employees, submit to your masters, your bosses. In Titus 2.9, we're all citizens. Titus 3.1, submit to rulers and authorities. Hebrews 12.9, obey your elders, obey your leaders and submit to them. They're the ones who are going to have to give an account to the Lord for the decisions they make, but you're supposed to submit. So here's the question. Families, children, parents, husbands, wives, are we to only submit when we believe the others are in the right? I don't see any modifiers here. I don't see any if then submit. And I'm not speaking of like sinfulness, righteous. They tell you to do something sinful, expressly wrong in the right context where God tells you not to do that. And it's very clear. I'm talking about just decisions. I'm speaking of They asked you to do this thing. They asked you to do it. And it turned out to be a wrong decision. Or a decision that you would have liked to have gone another way. Let me ask this. Parents, have you always been right? (laughs) Rowdy laughs. I haven't. I make bad decisions with my children all the time. And when I say bad, I don't mean like sinful, not sinful. Like it could have gone another way. I made a, could have made a better decision in the moment. Bosses, those of you who have employees, have you always made right decisions? No, I've been there too. Husbands, have you ever ever made a wrong decision? Have you has have all your decisions been perfect? If you say yes, then you're a liar. (laughs) There's no stipulation that the person who you're submitting to has to always be right for you to submit to them. They're not always going to be right. From this day forward, decisions that are made in this church, in your home, as parents... Children, bosses to employees, you will make a bad decision. You'll make a wrong decision. Submission from scripture is not predicated upon that. So we humble ourselves and submit. It's this idea that we look to the interests of other people. If this idea is grating in your soul right now, this idea of submission, mutual submission, it just gets under your skin. You need to ask yourself, do you have a problem with authority? Because if it does, if it gets under your skin, you don't like it, it feels weird, it feels gross. Your heart isn't submitting to scripture. Your pride is welling up in you right now and you're looking for every conceivable, conceivable excuse to hold on to your power position so you don't have to submit. If that's the case, brother or sister, you need to repent. You need to repent of your selfish ambition and your pride. I need to repent. I've spent all week thinking about every single way that I have not looked at or been concerned with what other people need 
All week I've been thinking about it. All the ways I've wronged my wife. All the ways that I've chosen what I wanted to do rather than what my children needed me to do. To play with them sometimes. To read to them. To go outside rather than sitting down and doing more work. Preferring others means that we humble ourselves and we submit to one another. Don't look to the interest, to our own interest, Paul says. Don't look just at what you want and what would please you. In this, we can get hung up on our own personal preference. I demand this carpet color, this style of song, this beat, this ministry setup, this in our marriage, this type of food. So on and so forth. Brothers and sisters, this type of church ends up being two ways. Where everybody's demanding their own personal preferences, what they want. No one gets served, number one. Or service is a means to an end where everybody's just pursuing their own goals and you have division and strife and will eventually end up in a church split. That's the only way it can go. No one gets served. Or it splits. Neither one is what Paul wants that doesn't glorify the Lord. In our church, if we're building up fortresses around my ministry, what I do, what I want to see done, we're wrong. It's not our church. This is not your church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. You happen to be a member. We belong to each other. We submit to each other, but this is not your church. Jesus didn't speak to you and say, you are the blank. This is his church. And we're to submit to one another, looking at each other's interests before our own. We are to adopt the same attitude as Jesus Christ. We're to look to the other, look to the interest of others. So we ask the question, what would be most loving and serving to others? Let me ask this, are we serving the most vulnerable in our midst? Single moms, widows, tired moms, those with special needs, those with financial needs, those with spiritual needs, when you think about our church, are those the thoughts that are going through your head? Or are you wondering, how is the church going to serve me? I hope this message serves me. I hope I get fed. I hope I like whoever's preaching today. I hope I like what they're preaching today. I hope I like the music. I hope I like this song versus that song. Or are you thinking about the church? How can I serve others today? How can I look to their interests instead of mine? Sometimes a tired mom of a little, like Lindsay, just needs someone to come and hold the baby. You know, one time, I think dad was like a month or two old. It was, it was after Mark and Debbie had left. But someone just came over and said, hold the baby so you can take a shower. <laughs> How that served my wife. Brothers and sisters, looking to the needs of others in our church. That's what Paul is calling us. That's what makes his joy complete. So here's the question. How do we order our ministries? How do we order our ministry of Applegate Community Church? Do we just say, well, that's all it's always been done, and I like that, so we're going to keep doing it. Or are we trying to serve the greatest number of people that we can? Looking towards the interest of others. This is the mind that Christ had. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Christ is the greatest of our examples in doing this. He gave up heaven and glory to live among sinful people that despised him. He emptied himself. He became obedient or submissive to the point of death even. 
Even death on a cross. Paul says even death on a cross because that was the most humble, wretched way you could die. It was the humblest way. It was reserved for sinners who were rapists and, and, and people who tried to overthrow the government and killers. That's how Jesus died. And he didn't consider being one with God up in heaven, something to be held onto so tightly that he wouldn't come down to heaven, take on flesh, live amongst a dirty, stinky people full of sin and weep over them and call them out and have them reject him and eventually to beat him and bruise him and laugh at him and hang him on a cross. He didn't consider being one with God up in heaven so great that he didn't come down and submit himself to our world. That's the mind that we should have in this church, in our families, amongst ourselves, that makes Paul's joy complete. That's where unity comes from, brothers and sisters. If we don't have that mind that was also in Christ, we will be disunified, our shields will come apart, and the arrows of Satan will pierce us. If our church is going to be salt and light and the gospel oozes out into our community, into our cities, that shows a love that the world cannot comprehend, nor can they live. They don't have the power to do that. We need to have this mind that was also in Christ, that we love one another, that we serve one another in humility, preferring others and completing Paul's joy and thus God's joy and also our joy. This community of love is a shield that the darts of hell cannot penetrate. It's a formation by which the goodness of the gospel can be taken into the most fortified of wicked places. That's the kind of unified church that someone who comes and visits just once, they go, there's love there. But if they were to stay, what would they see? I think there's a lot of that here. But just like the Philippians, I think there's some of it that's not here. Why? Because we're all selfish sinners and we're constantly working together to try to figure it out. I want to encourage us through the words of Paul to the Philippians, all the more, brothers and sisters, let's strive all the more to give up our selfish ambitions and our selfish goals and our directions that we're heading like cats in different directions to be unified in spirit and in love, and in one mind, and one accord, because God is one. And he, we have his love, and we have his spirit, and we have the encouragement of Christ. We can do it. We can look to the interest of others. As I close in this, we look to Christ. And if in your heart you know that you have been living in selfish ambition in one way or another, if you look to your own goals and your own desires greater than the desires of others, if there's been strife in your home and your marriage, parents to children, if there's been strife between believer and believer in this room that is unresolved, if you've been holding a grudge or envy or jealousy, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to reconcile. Mark mentioned forgiveness this morning. Genuine, deep forgiveness. And there's a theology of forgiveness that I think will be preached on in the near future. But it starts there. From this day forward, let's move. Imperfectly, we will not be perfect until, until Jesus comes again. And we're with him. But that doesn't mean we don't strive towards it. What would this church be like if every one of us were striving there earnestly through Christ to serve one another? Everyone would wind up getting served. When Lauren and I went through premarital counseling, our marriage counselor said, if you strive to serve each other, and outdo each other in service. You both are going to get served. I commend that to you, brothers and sisters, at Applegate Community Church. If you do everything you can through the Spirit, 
praying that Christ will give you the strength, being dependent on him, to serve one another, you will be served. You'll be loved. You'll be cared for. And your joy will be complete because the joy of the Father will be complete. Listen to Paul's words. And let's complete his joy. Let's complete the joy of the Father. And let's experience our own true joy in this church as we strive for these things. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be our example of what it means to humble ourselves and to look to the interest of others. Our interest was that we had a broken relationship with you, Father, and Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died so that we could reconcile that relationship to you, Father, that you called us and you brought us into reconciliation. You did it all, Father, and so we rejoice. Help us to live this way. Help us to live seeking the interest of others above ourselves, not living in selfish ambition, but to be unified, Father. May this church be a beacon of unity to our community, to our cities, and to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.